Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. As California joins the Super Tuesday slate, we're going to meet some young Californians who were fired up about politics, who feel like they can take charge and change things. They're not daunted. They're not jaded. They're not intractable. And they want to engage their peers. We're going to meet a 19-year-old running for city council and kids who are using pupusas and hip-hop to get out the vote. Plus, a couple who never let go of their youthful activism, even when they had to risk everything. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. First, we're going to meet a candidate who knows that the cards are stacked against him. His name is Marshall Woodmancy, and he's running for city council in San Jose. He's 19 years old. Christine Wynn has been following Marshall as he's been getting ready for March 3rd. He's an underdog. He doesn't have any powerful backers or money. But he says that's the problem with local government. If it weren't for his suit and wingtip shoes, Marshall Woodmansey would look like any of the kids. He's fist-bumping as he struts through the hallway of his old high school. He heads to his old English class, where he's got 30 minutes to give the students a reason to care about politics. So there's some serious issues, and I will tell you that nothing is happening, and nothing has been happening for decades. Marshall's running for city council in District 6, where historic homes cost millions. Lincoln High School is right in the middle of it. But over half the students here are low income. Okay, what do you think the average rent is for a one-bedroom apartment? Like 2100 $2,700 a month. And then to buy a home, oh, and none of us are going to do that. It's $1.1 million. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means we're not going to live here, probably. He tells them they need to get into local politics because the typical older voter won't vote in their interests. I tell you're not going to vote. I'll see you in there. I'll see you running for office. Next, we head to the public library, and Marshall talks to about 20 people along the way. Marshall says he breezed through community college at De Anza and was headed to San Jose State. But college wasn't addressing the local problems he saw, like the 2017 flooding that displaced 14,000 San Jose residents. On the last day, I vividly remember the last day and last final, I just stood there after class and I was like, what did I learn? How did I grow from this year in college? It all seemed very overwhelmingly underwhelming. So after only a year, he left college to run for office. The three biggest issues for San Jose in no particular order are housing, transportation, and community resilience. 
The Mercury News called Marshall, quote, a bright and worthy candidate for his generation. But the paper backed the incumbent, Dev Davis, explaining Marshall didn't have the, quote, funding or political backing to be a serious contender. That's the requirement? We need to change our requirements for what makes someone a good leader. A couple of nights later, Marshall is at a debate he and other teens have organized. It's not a typical event in an auditorium. There's live music, homemade food, and comfy couches under string lights. All four District 6 candidates were invited. Only Marshall and another candidate, Jake Tonkel, are here. Jake answers a question about involving youth in local politics. City Council in general it is a space where civic engagement is limited. And oftentimes it feels like it's on purpose. For Marshall, the question is a call to action. Um, but we do need to enter the political system as soon as possible. And if not enter, just bust in. Just break the door down and say, hey, we're here, we want change, and we're not leaving until we get it. Thank you. We're going to stick together. We're going to go down the first residential street, and then one of us will take one side of the street, then we'll take the other side. It's a clear, windy Super Bowl Sunday, and before the game, Marshall and his friends are canvassing the neighborhood. You want to, like, watch me knock on someone's door? Yeah, let's get a little example, you know. Michael Harris is in college and works at In-N-Out. So he helps out Marshall when he can. So I knew from the moment I met him, I was like, this guy is made for politics. He can connect with people, he cares about people, and he really tries to, like, represent everyone. And that's immediately what drew me to Marshall. Hey, how are you guys? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm at the top of my game. How about you? Michael pitches to resident Mark Purdy. Uh, so this is this is terrific what you're doing. Thank you. Uh, that said, <laughs> uh, Deb Davis is uh, someone I know and has been a very good uh, council member for us here. So I have to be honest and say I'm probably going to vote for her. Volunteer Alyssa McCullough has better luck with neighbor Susan Friedman. Hi. So my name's Alyssa. Um, I'm volunteering for Marshall Woodmancy's campaign. Um, he's running for city council in your district. Thank you for coming by. Thank you for running. Thank you for caring. Yeah, we need more people to be um, active and make good choices for our world. I agree. And, and I appreciate you One, two, three. Team Marshall. After four hours, Marshall heads back to campaign headquarters, the home he shares with his parents. Hello. Hello, good morning, good afternoon. That's How his mom, you? Tessa, a longtime activist. Some people speculate she made Marshall run. But it depends on how you look at it. Around when Marshall decided to run, their relationship was tense. He resented balancing the ideals she had taught him and his ineffectiveness as a student. So she told him, You could go that path, you know, being aggravated and angry, or you could be a leader. Soon after, Marshall decided to run for office. Now he's used up most of his campaign donations and has felt his emotions go from elation to despair and back again. I am tired. I'm very tired. Um, and that, that's not just a physical attribute. It's, it's very mental. But he says he's created a community. Knocking on doors has been the most important thing that I've done in this campaign. Uh, and it's been, it's brought me the most success, the fact that I, I know my neighbor's stories and I reconnected with people from my childhood. People have ties to, to wh- where they call home, 
That's what makes a city great. This year running for office has taught Marshall more than a year of college. He's connected with hundreds of idealists like him. And win or lose this election, he's ready to continue their fight. For The California Report, I'm Christine Nguyen in San Jose. Christine is not just a radio storyteller. She's actually a doctor. She's a gastroenterologist. And she sees a lot of young people for anxiety. Now, she lives in District 6. And when she heard about Marshall, he reminded her of some of her patients. But she was curious about him because he was using his anxiety and channeling it towards something positive. California colleges and universities are playing a bigger role this election year. On dozens of campuses, they've set up these voting centers for the first time. And a lot of college kids are trying to get out the vote among their peers. Adolfo Guzman Lopez covers education for KPCC, and he met some of them, including Leslie Aguirre, who's trying to do just that at Cal State Northridge. I just came out of class. Um, it's actually an elections course. So I'm learning about elections and how people vote and what motivates people to vote. Leslie passes a window display that makes her think about the disconnect between people her age and politics. It's a political science display of 17 bobbleheads, George Washington, Lincoln, and mostly other white men. It feels very far removed that only these people who come from, you know, a lot of money or from these Ivy Leagues or, you know, whatever, like this very stereotypical thought of what a politician is, can only make those changes. She now knows that people like her, the daughter of working-class Salvadoran immigrants, can make change through politics. She learned it in 2016 when she volunteered for the Democratic Party of the San Fernando Valley, making calls and walking neighborhoods to promote issues and candidates. It was really empowering to see, like, okay, voting, that's one form of doing it. Um, Political protest, that's another form of doing it. And so it really empowered me to feel that I could be an agent of change or that I have some form of influence over the government. She channeled that energy this school year into her job for Associated Students. She helped secure a voter center at Cal State Northridge and brought Secretary of State Alex Padilla last month for a Q&A with students. Her big event before she stepped down was a four-hour student voting engagement event she titled Politics Isn't a Bad Word. A DJ plays while students stop at half a dozen tables. At one, they can use colored markers to list important issues. At another, they test out the new LA County voting machine and register to vote. Go through all stations and get two free pupusas. Alisis Curtis is a sophomore. She just posed in the photo booth with an Abe Lincoln hat and a vote sign. Her takeaway from the event? Oh, that it's important to vote and who to vote for and for the whole community to get involved regardless of if it's student politics or United States politics is important because it affects us. This is a nonpartisan event. There's no promotion of candidates or campaigns. At the stencil table, students choose from several phrases they can have airbrushed on a tote bag. Marisol Cabrera Torres is a senior, and she's undocumented. I can't vote myself, so I got a one that says vote for those who can't vote, a little bag. She says she's grateful for voters who support politicians who've created DACA programs. She hopes to become a voter one day. 
Cal State Northridge isn't the only campus thinking outside the box to get students engaged in voting. Earlier this month, UC Berkeley students organized an event called Votechella. Varsha Sarvishwar is a student there and the UC Student Association president. We just had a concert with Waka Flocka Flame, <laughs> where a couple hundred students came out, um, and we were able to, to reach out to them to register them. Yes, the Waka Flocka Flame, who ran for president in 2016 to legalize marijuana. Varsha says the concert the year before tried to get students excited about the midterm elections. Fall 2018, my office here at UC Berkeley did a similar concert, and that was with Cupcakes. So, you know, we're always into finding new and interesting ways to get students to be involved. Interesting for UC Berkeley students means Cupcakes' profane rap persona. I cannot play you Cupcake's lyrics. They aren't what you would expect at a voter engagement rally, although she did promote voting from the stage. Carol Moon Goldberg is president of the League of Women Voters of California. She praises how these efforts teach young voters about the process. It's like building muscle memory to say, yeah, here's an election and I'm going to participate. So now I'll start, you know, researching the candidates and looking at the ballot propositions. And, it, you know, it takes time and practice and a little encouragement. Whether or not stenciled tote bags, pupusas, and raunchy rap will help get out the youth vote will be seen on Election Day. For the California Report, I'm Adolfo Guzman Lopez in Los Angeles. We're going to meet a couple who started off as youth activists, but they actually carried that activism with them for the rest of their lives. We're going to hear their story from their son, Matt Elkins, who sent us a letter to his parents, Morton and Thelma Elkins. It's part of a series we're calling Letter to My California Dreamer, where we've been asking you to write a letter to the original Californian in your family who came to the Golden State with a dream. Dear Mom and Dad, you both came to San Francisco from the East Coast. Dad, you came from Philly in the 1940s to attend Stanford on the GI Bill. Mom, you were working in a New York shipyard in the early 1950s. You visited a friend in San Francisco and never left. Your friends and family were bewildered by your choice to relocate so far away. You both would say that California was founded by those who chose to leave somewhere else. You were political southpaws and had a deep dislike and fear of the communist witch hunts spreading like lava across the country, ruining lives in its Cold War path. In 1953, Governor Earl Warren passed the Levering Act, which required all public employees to sign a loyalty oath disavowing, quote-unquote, radical beliefs. You fell in love with each other after meeting at a non-signer's party. Not signing the oath was an earlier and more dangerous version of taking a knee. The outcome could eventually lead people to jail, the poorhouse, or even suicide. Indeed, outing people for their communist beliefs and their sympathies, true or not, had already taken its toll for some time. Dad, you lost your job as an English teacher in the San Francisco Unified School District when you refused to sign the oath. You took a job as a warehouseman and became active in the International Longshoremen's and Warehouse Union. That was a red flag for the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC as it was called, 
They interrogated you in 1960 when they dropped into San Francisco like a circus. Did you ever get any compensation directly or indirectly from the Communist Party? I keep this recording, first broadcast on KQED, on my phone for those times where I need strength or just miss you. In your defense, you quoted the First Amendment of the Constitution. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievance. That is my answer, sir. Yes, well, uh, Everything about it, the accusations, parlance, and countenance made for a surreal stage reduction of sorts. You were prepared. In your own very familiar way, you utilized your time to defend, disarm, and educate, flustering and flummoxing your interrogator before finally being excused. The ninth witness to appear before the subcommittee of American Activities, Mr. Martin Elkins, has been excused, and the tenth witness has been called. You, Mom, raising two young daughters, were also six months pregnant with me. You work for the Red Cross, managing to fly under the radar even though you also refused to sign the oath. You often said that the pressure was enormous and that giving in and going along with the majority was a choice both tempting yet unimaginable. At great cost to your growing family, you dealt with wiretaps, threats, even swastikas on your Richmond, California home. Dad, you were officially vindicated in 1967 when the California Supreme Court ruled 6-1 to one, that the Levering Act was unconstitutional. You and Mom went on to have careers as social workers and business owners in Berkeley. You stayed surrounded by the people who emerged, scarred but alive. At the height of the Vietnam War, you marched down Telegraph Avenue, lined up against the California National Guard with your kids. You continued to fight other battles as they came up, whack-a-mole style. Mom, even while you had cancer and were going blind, you organized and fought for the rights of low vision sufferers. Mom and Dad, your efforts and experiences teed up a much easier existence for me and my sisters. I envy your strength and often wonder if I could call on it under the same circumstances. In the current political climate, your help would be invaluable. Love, Matt. Matt Elkins, letter to his parents. His dad, Morton, passed away in 1997, and his mom, Thelma, in 2017. ever been on the ferry to Catalina Island, the first thing you probably spotted in the harbor is this giant white stone building with a red cone-shaped roof. This enormous ballroom of unusual and distinctive architecture is built at the very water's edge, with promenades overlooking the beautiful bay and the dim, mysterious hills rising beyond. The Avalon has been showing films since the talkies of the 1920s. But after nearly a century, the screen at the Avalon is going dark. Our intern, Ariella Markowitz, actually grew up on Catalina, and she's going to take us to the Avalon to show us how much the theater has meant to locals. I'm riding over to the Avalon Theater, island style, in the backseat of a golf cart. 
I'm with my friends, and we're on our way to see Jumanji the next level. This is two nights before the theater stops showing movies for good. It's very sad. It's the only reason why we're going to see Jumanji next level. That's Clara Alvarez. I'm also with her sister, Diana. Honestly, seems like a big f*** you to the community. It's very sad that we're that one lifeline is being taken away. We feel so much more isolated now. The theater really is a lifeline. On a regular night, going to the movies is one of the only things to do. We're literally surrounded by water, isolated from LA by an hour-long boat ride. Seeing a movie meant getting a taste of culture outside our island, being transported to a different place. It's where I saw classic films, like this 1980 thriller. Here's Johnny! When they played The Shining. And we oh, all I remember that! Oh my god. I remember McKenna and, like, I think Triana, or McKenna left early. Yeah, they were so scared. Yeah. I even graduated high school in the Avalon Theater. I recorded the ceremony, and I still keep it on my phone. The room was packed. Named for the town of Avalon, the theater felt like our theater. In a community designed for cruise ship day trippers, the theater was for us, the islanders. This is the perfect little parking spot. Five minutes later, everything is really close here. We pull over and buy tickets. Thank you. ASMR. I'm trying not to think about how this might be our last movie. I love Danny DeVito. It's a normal night and also a sacred experience. Sacred, really. That's really the word. And anybody that goes there is is it's just breathtaking, you know. That's Melinda Benson. She also grew up on Catalina. This November, Melinda saw a very controversial post on the Catalina Discussion page, a Facebook group for local drama. In simple and frank language, it said, we will discontinue showing movies at the Avalon Theater. I had to read it again. I was just in shock, disbelief, you know. I felt the same way when I saw the post. Melinda did something about it. She made a petition on change.org, and it went viral. As of now, it has almost 20,000 signatures, which is four times the population of Catalina. She sent the petition to the theater's owner and operator, the Island Company. The CEO, Randy Harrell, sent her an email saying, it's out of our hands. Ticket sales for movies have been declining since the 1950s, and industry giants like Disney take over half of ticket revenue. The theater seats over 1,000 people but only 36 people show up on an average night. It's a financial sinkhole. But this economic logic feels cold to Melinda. Like, really, the kids of Avalon, um, they're the ones that are going to be hurt the most by this. William Wrigley Jr., that Wrigley, the chewing gum magnate and owner of the Chicago Cubs, bought the Island Company in 1919. He had a vision to turn the livestock farmlands into a glamorous tourist destination. He built the theater and upstairs ballroom in 1929 for $2 million. The theater premiered with The Iron Mask, a part talkie starring Douglas Fairbanks. 
Celebrities in the 30s and 40s flocked to Catalina for film premieres and to escape L.A. And some still do. I've had some of my best days of my life on Catalina Island. That's Nicolas Cage. He's accepting the Charlie Chaplin Award at the Catalina Film Festival. Uh, While you're in my favorite theater in the world, the Casino Theater on Avalon, uh, with the beautiful sparkling lights to look like stars on the ceiling and with the uh, Art Deco aquatic uh, murals. When I went home for the holidays, I got to talk to the guy who spends so much time in the theater, Nick Cage would be jealous. He even has his own key. I'm John Tusek. John's the resident organist at the Avalon Theater. Just the back of his head with that signature black ponytail is an iconic fixture here. He's been playing a movie overture two to three nights a week for the past 21 years. I came over here in a day trip with some Morgan people in 1998. And just kind of latched onto the place. The organ was built in the 30s by the Page Organ Company. It's one of two still in operation. John's sticking around once the theater closes to restore the organ. And he hopes to keep the music of Hollywood's golden age alive. Hopefully I'll, I'll always We'll be here for a long time. I'll be the phantom of the theater. (laughs) Without nightly movies, locals can still pay to tour the theater. High school graduation will still happen annually, as well as the Catalina and silent film festivals. We can still access the space, but not in the same way. All right, well, thank you so much. Happy New Year to you. A few days later, it's New Year's Eve, and I'm back at the theater. Folks in fancy attire line up to attend the New Year's Eve ball in the upstairs ballroom. I'm outside the box office talking to people on the way to their last movie. Some weren't taking it well. Oh my god. So stupid. Others are hoping to see the theater reopen one day. Rebecca Watson gives tours inside the casino. You just never know. Um, uh, There's probably a light at the end of the tunnel some way, somehow. The last song organist John Tusak plays is always Avalon. It's an old jazz standard about our town. But knowing it's the last time, it sounds different. All the elements I took for granted seem magical. It's like the house you grew up in after your parents move out, knowing you'll never be able to come back and have it feel the same. For the California Report, I'm Ariella Markowitz on Catalina Island. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller. And we had engineering help this week from Katie McMurrin and Jacob Winnick. Our senior editor is Victoria Maleon. This week, we mourn the passing of KQED's one-of-a-kind copy editor, Pat Yallen. She was an accomplished and respected journalist, and at one point in her career, she rode public transit in disguise to write about it for the San Francisco Examiner. And our mystery guest is the Examiner's phantom commuter who writes about and evaluates traffic in the Bay Area. In 1984, she made an appearance on KQED TV wearing a floppy hat and a red ski mask to disguise her identity and maybe a few BART lines, and I would put bicycle racks on buses. Pat 
spent four decades as a reporter and an editor, and she broke ground on so many important stories about the LGBTQ community, about the AIDS epidemic. She spent the last seven years of her career with us at KQED. Goodbye, Pat, and thank you for your careful eyes on our stories. You made everything we did better. We'll miss you. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation, presenting Tradeoffs, a new podcast that tries to make sense of our costly and complicated healthcare system. Subscriptions at tradeoffs.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems and the James Irvine Foundation, honoring the recipients of the 2020 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards. Learn more at irvine.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.